as gold. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our final session of the Jewish Course of Why. Always a bittersweet experience to have our final session of a course. Um, on the one hand, it's going to be the culmination and, uh, and a seum, if you will, like a conclusion of a, of a study session, which is very joyous. On the other hand, it of course means that we close it out, at least for this session. But don't worry, there's plenty more opportunities to study. I'm going to announce a new course coming up. Um, actually, a few new opportunities, hopefully before the end of today's session. So let's jump in. They tell a story about a Jewish guy who's traveling in the Deep South. Not Atlanta. Atlanta is not like the Deep South. I mean like the deep, deep South. And he's going, he walks into a bar that's not so Jew-friendly. How do you know? He knows. This guy can tell it's not so Jew-friendly. Um, and he's looking, all, he's looking all Jewy and all that good stuff. This big burly fellow walks over and says, you know, all the problems in the world are because of the Jews. And the Jewish guy nods his head. He says, you know, you're right. All the problems of the world are because of the Jews and the motorcyclists. The guy says, why the motorcyclists? This guy says, why the Jews? And then he runs out of the bar. Anyway, that's the, uh, that's, I'm not giving advice about what to do when confronted in such a situation, but nonetheless. So today we have, this is the Jewish course of why we're looking at Jewish why questions that span the spectrum of Jewish thought, whether it's Jewish law, Jewish custom, um, whether it is tradition or culture or food or whatever it is, the goal is to cover as much ground as possible and, and address as many, as que- many questions as possible. Today we have about se- um, seven or eight questions that we're going to address. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to joining, to, to, uh, to engaging in this experience of exploration together with you. Okay, I just opened up my text on my side. I sent you a, an email that should have had the PDF attached to it. Hopefully you got it. But if not, you could open it up. If not, I'm going to share with you my screen regardless. All right, so the first question, the first why question we're going to deal with has to do with the topic that I alluded to before, which is the notion of anti-Semitism. And here's the question, why have the Jews been singled out for persecution and hate throughout history? That's our first question. Now, I need to qualify that with a very, I think, a very important qualification. I'm going to stop sharing. Um, And that qualification is that Jews by no means have been, one second, have been the only group to be persecuted. So it's not like Jews have the lock on persecution, nor is it uh, a badge of honor either, for that matter. I mean, it's, but it's a reality. There's been Jew hatred throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, throughout different uh, places and different times, different eras, different languages, different cultures. There's been a, it seems to be a constant where Jews are oftentimes looked at in a certain way, in a negative way, and, uh, and not treated in the way that perhaps others are treated. Again, not to the exclusion of others, other groups that have also been mistreated, but nonetheless, there seems to be a, uh, a dynamic here when it comes to Jews and, and as we see in Jewish history. So the first question is, why the anti-Semitism? Why the Jew hatred? And let me open this up to the floor. What do you all think? What's the reason? Why do people hate the Jews? What do you think? 
We're not giving anybody a reason, by the way. This is not like, oh, you should know last week. No, no, I don't want any of that. But like historically, what are some of the rationales for, for Jew hatred? What you got? Jealousy. Jealousy. Okay, what else? Jerry. The whole Christ killer. Christ killer. Okay, what else? Nonconformity. Nonconformity. Okay, good. What else? Misconstruing of the term chosen people. Yes, I like that. I like that. Here's a man who was uh, following along as we discussed the previous topic. I love that. Right? Chosen people. That could rub people the wrong way. Excellent. And we explained that in a previous session, what it means and what it doesn't mean. What else? What else? Other reasons that underlie anti-Semitism? Money, accomplishment, education. Right. Money, accomplishment. Right. Um, what else? What else? Along those lines, even give me more. What do people say today? Adina Malka. Oh, re resilience. Okay, resilience. Okay, what, what else? What, what are rationales? State of rationales for anti-Semitism. Why do they say they hate us? Whoever they is. Doesn't matter who they are. Controlling. We control everything. Oh, oh, we control the media. We control Hollywood. Right? Control the banks. Control the banks. Who could forget about the banks? Yeah. We control everything. We control even um, athletics. You know, how many Jewish owners are there in sports? Right? Robert Kraft. Arthur Blank. I'm just saying to mention, to mention a few. What else? Other rationales for anti-Semitism? Members of a conspiracy. Yes, members of the conspiracy. Yes, excellent. Excellent, excellent. Secret meeting, by the way, takes place right after this class. Separate, separate room. World domination is on the topic for tonight. No big deal. Keep it on the down low. Good, excellent. Excellent, Alex. What else? What else? Other rationales for anti-Semitism? Jealousy, good. What else? Who just said something before, though? I, I think we missed. I missed one comment. Was it Jerry or David? We're different. Different. Okay, good. I think. Listen, I think we we uh, we ran the table on this. I think we got pretty much all of the good reasons. Um, listen, if after all of this they don't hate us, what's wrong with them? I'm kidding, by the way. Slow down. I'm actually kidding. Um, but these are some of the rationales that have been given historically for why people dislike the Jews. I want to share with you a text, one of the texts that I feel is so profound about this topic. It's um, uh, something that, uh, that, that Rabbi Dr. Lord, I'm not sure the right order there, Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the UK, so he talks about this. He talks about this in, um, in his writings on the topic. Take a look-see at text 1A, all right? Take a look at text 1A. Um, give me a second. Yeah, here we go. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He writes the following. Is it big enough? Should I make it a little bit bigger? Yeah, there we go. Why not? Make it nice and big. Anti-Semitism, he says is not an ideology. Hold on one second. Let's, we gotta unmute everybody. Hold on, hold on. Let's get everybody muted. Okay, here we go. Ant Let me start again, text 20. Anti-Semitism is not an ideology, a coherent set of beliefs. It is in fact an endless stream of contradictions. The best way of understanding it is to see it as a virus 
Viruses attack the human body, but the body itself has an immensely sophisticated defense, the human immune system. How then do viruses survive and flourish? By mutating. Anti-Semitism mutates and in doing so, and in so doing, defeats the immune system set up by cultures to protect themselves against hatred. This is really, really, pro in my opinion, it's really profound. Basically, I, I know the irony of talking about viruses and, and the human body being able to ward off viruses in the middle of coronavirus. I'm very well aware this was written in 2007 when the immune system of human beings was working pretty effectively overall, not like 2020 amidst this pandemic. Nonetheless, um, he says that anti-Semitism is much like a virus where the way that it works is it tries to go around the immune system. So there are immune systems that human beings have put up to prevent, to stop hate or to ward off against hatred. But anti-Semitism has a way of working around, which is why it's an endless stream of contradictions, he wrote in the opening sentence there. What does that mean? You will not find a single formula that explains anti-Semitism throughout all of history. Why? Because it's had to mutate. And because it's had to mutate, it has to come up with additional rationales. Are you with me on the logic? He hasn't explained it. He's about to, we're about to get into it, some specifics. It's brilliant. But at the core, what he's saying is, if you had one rationale for anti-Semitism, well, then as soon as you debunk it, as soon as you disprove it, we're done. But no, the reason why anti-Semitism anti is so persistent is because it keeps on morphing and changing and mutating. Let's see what he means in the next text. It's beautiful. I mean, scary, but very amazing how he explains this. Um, okay, Jonathan Sachs. Anti-Semitism has always had to find legitimation in the most prestigious source of authority at any given time. In the first centuries of the Common Era, and again in the Middle Ages, this was religion. In other words, religion was the most prestigious um, source of authority at, at, at that time. This is why, that is why Judeophobia took the form of religious doctrine. In the 19th century, religion had lost prestige, and the supreme authority was now science. Racial anti-Semitism was duly based on two pseudosciences, social Darwinism, the idea that in societies and nature the strong survive by limiting the weak, and the so-called scientific study of race. Just to be very clear here what he's saying. He's saying that anti-Semitism begins, or I don't know if it begins, but it's one of its uh, strong um, eras is in the era in which religion is king, religion dominates, and what's the problem? The Jews are the wrong religion, or worse, they killed God, right? They killed Christ. That's the, the most egregious religious act, right? Again, according to, according to that line of thinking that could ever be done, and therefore we got a problem with the Jews. When, when religion loses its prestige, well, then what's the problem with the Jews? Not the religion, because we don't care about religion. What's the problem? The wrong race, the wrong science. We have Darwinism, the strong must survive by eliminating the weak, and the Jews are a race in fear that needs to be eliminated. That was, of course, the, the ethos or the, the rationale of Germany. By the late 20th century, he continues to say, science had lost its prestige, having given us the power to destroy life on Earth, and we realize that science is maybe not, uh, not so hot. Today, I mean, it is, but 
Maybe it's dangerous. Today, the supreme source of legitimacy is human rights. That is why Jews of the Jewish state are accused of the five primal sins against human rights, racism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, attempted genocide, and crimes against humanity. Sachs says it's no surprise that Jews, and especially Israel, are now condemned as the greatest violators of human rights in the history. UN, there have not been as many UN condemnations of any other nation, including North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, you name it, there has not been even close to the number of proclamations against a country as has been leveled against the state of Israel. And Sachs points out, and I don't know how you argue against this, Sachs points out, you can tell me from today to tomorrow your rationale. It's a virus and it's mutated. And now the big thing, the big issue on the table is human rights. Guess who's the worst? Guess who the world says is the worst at human rights? The Jews. How convenient. When religion is king, the Jews are, against, are the wrong religion. When science is king, the Jews are the wrong race. And when human rights are king, well, the Jews are the worst violators of human rights. Are you with me on this? Uh, it is, I mean, this, this way of explaining anti-Semitism by Sachs is really powerful. And it's, to me, I think it's really an eye-opener to understand the motivation behind, you know, there's always a text and a subtext. Right? When you see something happening, the question is not what's happening, but why is it happening? What's underlying? Is it really that it happens to be that the state of Israel is the worst violator of all countries on earth with human rights? Is that, is that I mean, it's possible, right? But is that really it? Or is there perhaps another agenda? Now, that's not to say that anyone, any one country, any one people, any one leader is perfect. Of course not. But, but when we talk about the level of condemnation and the level of, um, of censor and, and, and all of this stuff, it, it, it really bespeaks there perhaps being, at least we should be open to ask the question, is there another agenda? Sachs says, yes, there certainly is. It's just another form of anti-Semitism. Instead of going against the Jew, now we go against the Jewish state, but it's really the same story, just taking on a different form for legitimacy. So just like a virus needs to attack, right? Needs to attack, go around the defenses and has to attack the weakest point. So too, anti-Semitism finds a way to, um, to find the opening in each era as it is. All right, questions, comments so far? I'm going to go a little bit deeper, but just want to explore this a little bit so far. I have one comment. Uh, the, to me, what, what you're establishing, and I agree with it, I don't know if you intend to, but I think you have, is that they don't, people don't like, dislike, people who dislike, whoever they are, who dislike Jews, don't do so for a current reason. They they simply do so. Correct. And like so many people uh, who whose prejudices and hatreds have outlived the time, they grasp for whatever they can. And I, yeah. I, I don't. I, I think that all the comments we made at the beginning of the reason that it's. I mean, 
I don't know who I'm offending. I'm sure it's somebody in this conversation, and I don't mean to do that. But I am not a fan of Donald Trump. And, but I think that there's... One second, one second. So hold on. Hold on one second. So what, one thing is very important, and, and I, I'm not going to take a position for or against, but one thing we're very, we try very strongly is to not discuss politics in this, to keep it completely about Torah. So I'm not, I'm not commenting on the substance of what you're saying, but I, I, I just, I, and this is not only to you, this is to everybody, we don't, we don't talk politics, so no, no mentions of politicians. We'll talk about concepts, but no, we, I, I don't want to get into any, uh, any, any political discussion, just because this is not, this is not the platform and, and not, not the space for them. That's fine. I, I don't need that. It just comes to mind, obviously, in, the, in these in these times. But I mean, for example, populism—not to dominate the conversation—but in, in 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 historical episodes of populism in this country, where the Midwestern and Western farmers hated the Eastern, uh, Northeastern, and, and perhaps Jewish bankers, as they were foreclosing on their farms. I mean, it, it sort of had a reason there. But I mean, I, I'm just—I don't want to repeat what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm, i think I'm agreeing with with Lundy, yeah. what you're saying is that they don't—they don't need a reason because they don't have a reason. Yes, they should have one, so they invent it. Right. Excellent. So, so I want to—I want to play off that theme because that was really the next step in this conversation. So, knowing that that the rationales, the so-called rationales, are just whatever is popular in the time, and the Jews are the wrong on the on the wrong will be portrayed on the wrong side of that. So knowing that is very instructive, is very helpful in being able to manage our understanding of anti-Semitism. Because here's the deal, historically, the reasons have been contradictory. We've been hated because we've been socialists. We've been hated because we've been capitalists. We've been hated because we were rich. We've been hated because we were poor. We've been hated because we were separate from, from others. We were hated because we've assimilated amongst others. So every condition and its opposite has been used as a rationale to hate the Jews, which tells us that it's not the reasons, as you pointed out, but rather there's something deeper underlying. What is that? I want to share with you very quickly I don't want to dumb, you know, this is, we have a lot of um, points to get to, so I just want to mention this very quickly um, and then move on to the next question, but there is an interesting Talmudic passage. We've studied this before in other contexts. I actually did a course uh, about a year ago or so on anti-Semitism where we focused on this extensively, um, but very briefly, the Talmud deals with the story of the holiday of Purim, the book of Esther, and the king, I don't know how to pronounce it in English, I'm going to go to the Hebrew, Achashverosh and Haman or Haman. I'll just go Haman, but Achashverosh, easier for me to pronounce the, uh, the Hebrew version of the name. Text number two, let's read this inside. Achashverosh, the Persian king, and Haman, the evil advisor, um, who wished to destroy the Jews, can be compared to two people, one who had a mound in his field, Achashverosh, and the other who had a deep ditch in his field, Haman. The owner of the ditch mused to himself, I wish I could buy that mound and fill up my ditch. And the owner of the mound mused to himself, I wish I could purchase the right to dump my mound into his empty ditch. So in other words, one guy wanted to get rid of dirt, and one guy wanted to fill a hole. So, mazel tov, it's a good match. Not long afterward, the two met. The owner of the ditch said, sell me your mound. The owner of the mound said, take it for free. I don't want this dirt anyway. And it was wonderful. Okay, so this is, this is the parable that the Talmud gives to understand the nature of the anti-Semitism or the hatred, the Jew hatred of Achashverosh and Haman in the story of 
Purim in the book of Esther. And it's very instructive in understanding the, what's, what lies at the heart of anti-Semitism. There is the anti-Semite that is like the mound and the, and the anti-Semite that is like the ditch. The mound hatred and the ditch hatred, what are those? Here we go. The, the mound represents someone who sees the Jew and says, I don't get him. They're different. They're strange. They don't fit in. They got their own ways. I don't know. I don't really know what's going on here. They rub me the wrong way. I can't figure them out. I'm not that into them. I don't know. Now, is that person like driven to destroy? No, but already has a little bit of a, you know, a wariness. But then you have the person, the anti-Semite, who's in the model of Haman, like the ditch. The ditch is the one who says, the fact of the Jew's existence makes me feel worse inside. In other words, the fact that the Jew exists and the Jew is a testament, you know, the Jew bears witness. Whether Whatever we're doing or not doing, it doesn't matter about the individual. The Jewish people themselves bear witness to God, Torah, Bible, values, ethics, morality, law and order, all of these biblical ideas. The fact of the Jew makes me feel uncomfortable. Not the mound, you know, I don't know what they're all about. I'm not sure what they're here for. I don't know. They don't really fit in. But the one who th makes the other feel like they have a hole in their heart almost makes them feel guilty, let's say, about they, what they would want to do otherwise. But the Jew bears testimony to something that's a different level of morality. That person is driven to destroy the Jew, to harm the Jew in every generation. I will tell you this, uh, you know, in, in other forms, it's not exclusive to Jew hatred, although it's been the last 3,300 years or so since we've been a nation that we face this. Nonetheless, this is true of others. When it comes to other groups of people that other people hate, sometimes, or other people dislike, hate is a strong word, it's not for... So sometimes the dislike, bordering on hate, has to do with they're different. They're different. I don't know. I don't get them. I don't want them around because they're different. But sometimes it's, ah, that person, that person is taking something away from me. That person is dangerous. That person is insidious. And that stirs more of an antagonism toward that group. Are you with me on this? Yes. The mound and the ditch. So there's the mound that they said, who like casts a wary eye on the Jew. And then there's the ditch anti-Semite who the very existential being of the Jew makes them somehow in their own mind and heart less than, and they're driven to get rid of the Jew in order to breathe a sigh of relief. Either way, the bottom line is not justifying it at all, obviously, just saying that there are deeper dimension, deeper forces at play. All of the rationales that are given, oh, you know, you're the wrong this, the wrong that, too much money, too little money, too much assimilation, too little assimilation, um, this po uh, political opinion, that political opinion, this economic belief system, that economic belief system, the whole thing is Baba Mises. The whole thing doesn't make sense. Like I said before, we were hunted down because we were socialists. We've been hunted down because we've been capitalists, because we had money and controlled the bank, so to speak, and because we had no money and we're leeching off society. Because we were separate, oh, you're better than everyone else, and because we were assimilated. Who lets you in? It, you can't win. So it's not any of these reasons. It's a deeper reason. What's the bottom line? What's the message? Look, can't make them happy, so don't try to make anyone else happy. You gotta be yourself.
You got to be true to who you are. And listen, the bottom line is the more the world evolves and becomes a better place, a kinder place. I know it's hard to believe, you know, that there could be progress, but I believe there is progress and we're even seeing progress little by little. The more the world evolves toward greater love and greater respect and greater tolerance and greater belief in a higher power, etc., the more, the more hopefully our belief is that things will improve, not only for Jews, but for others as well. And the bottom line is, that's the world we want to live in. The world of Mashiach, the world of the Messiah, is a world, according to the Jewish prophecies, where nation will not lift sword against nation. People will not practice war anymore. They will not hate each other. There will not be jealousy or anger, etc. Why? Because everyone's going to be focused on what's really important and really true. And honestly, that's not hating on each other. It's, uh, there's other, other more important things to do than to hate. All right. Let's jump. Let's move on. It's, uh, it's a dark topic. I don't know. Dark, whatever. It's a heavy topic. All right. We got it in. Let's now talk about a little bit of a lighter topic, something that usually comes with a celebration, which is bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah. If you want, we can say b'nai mitzvah, right? Whatever it is, whatever your favorite phrase, it means the coming of age of a young Jewish boy or girl. Now, let me ask you this question. What age is adulthood in our society, our, our secular society? What is the age of adulthood in the United States of America. Unmute yourself, jump in with an age. Give me an age. 40. What do we have? <laughs> 40. For, well, 40, okay. No, but what else? What other ages are there of, uh, of adulthood? Hot huh, 21, what else? 18. 18. 18. Okay, so for various things, and by the way, state by state, so somebody might say, oh, I know the age of adulthood. As soon as I can get behind the wheel of a car, oh, that's it. So um, in Georgia, what is it? Is it 16 or is it 15? What's in Georgia? What's it? What is it? 16. 16. Okay. Okay. I have a 16 year old who's not yet driving and doesn't have his permit yet. I asked him, you want to get it? He's like, yeah, soon, whatever. So I haven't, I haven't, that's my oldest. So I haven't yet crossed that bridge. Um, certainly not with him driving. Anyway, Bottom line, <laughs> bottom line is that different societies at different ages for adulthood, you know, whether it's 15 or 16 or 18 or 20 or 21, every, you know, society has a different age. Usually it's between 18 to 21, around that age that we confer adulthood. However, in Judaism, we have a different age. For girls, it's 12, and for boys, it's 13. If you've ever been at a bar mitzvah, where the bar mitzvah boy is reading from the Torah, standing on a telephone book, because he can't, I, I know that's like old school, but standing on a telephone book because he can't reach the bima, right? Can't actually reach the bima to read from the Torah because it's too high. You wonder, and this guy's an adult? This kid's an adult? Who are you kidding? Right? Yeah, the famous joke. Today I am, Jerry, you can help me out here, right? Today I am a... Fountain pen. Fountain pen, exactly, right? So what is it? Like that suddenly you're an adult because you got a fountain pen or because uh, you, you had a party in the synagogue? Come on, how is that adulthood? What's the deal? You know, on what planet is 12 or 13 an adult? Uh, it certainly doesn't, doesn't ring, doesn't uh, resonate. So what's the deal? I want to share with you a, a my, my opinion, a mind-blowing text. It's so powerful. And it puts things in such a beautiful perspective. Take a look. It's actually, I think it's a letter. Let's see. 
uh, skip some pages here. Oh, it's notes that the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote in his private notebook that was published after he passed away. Well, not private, but notes for himself on Torah ideas. Take a look what he writes. Um, text three at the bottom. Let's see if I can make this a little bit bigger. No, it cuts off for me. Okay, the age of majority for Jewish males is 13. Although to obtain certain rights and privileges, one must be 18, 20, or even 40, this stands in contrast to the laws of the nations, which stipulate that one reaches the age of majority around the age of 20. So what's the reason? That's the, that's the unstated question is, why the difference? Why for a young Jewish boy, it's 13, girls 12, but why is it 12, 13 in Judaism, but 20 or so, give or take, in the other nations? Most nations, listen to this, a little history lesson. Most nations were formed when tribes abandoned their nomadic existence as herdsmen to settle on a land, banded together, sorry, banded together to choose a leader, and organized militarily to defend their territory. Only afterward did they establish a legal system. So again, just to be clear, what he's saying is, is that most nations formed, you know, you had random people traveling, they got together, and they decided what's the purpose of getting together? To protect their own collective interests or their own individual interests. Let's pull resources together and let's, uh, let's watch each other's backs. And only afterwards did they establish a legal system. That was kind of like, now that we have a group, we have to have rules for the group. So then they create a legal system. But the first thing is kind of the, the defense, the, the military, if you will, the defense, and then the legal system. Regarding the Jewish, back inside, regarding the Jewish nation, however, the opposite is true. Immediately upon being liberated from bondage in Egypt, while still in the desert, an uninhabitable land, they united under the Torah and mitzvot, the law. This was the foundation and beginning of Jewish nationhood. Therefore, according to Jewish law, one need not be 20 the age when a citizen is strong enough to contribute to his country's existence by defending it to reach the age of majority. Rather, the Jewish nation confers adult status when youngsters are mature enough to understand the great privilege and responsibility of being a part of the Jewish people. What a powerful um, historical analysis on the origins of societies and nations and the origin of Judaism to explain the difference in age of majority. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's so beautiful. And the, I'm just going to restate it in my own words, and, and hopefully this resonates. Every other nation formed with people banding together, in essence, to defend each other. Therefore, to be a member of the club, you have to be able to defend. So you have to be of military age, and that's always been around 20. That's always been. Judaism is not a military society. Judaism doesn't begin with the interests of defense, with the interests of the military. Judaism begins with an interest in Torah and mitzvot. It's radically different. The law comes before the defense. Not defense before law. Law comes before the defense. Therefore, to reach the age of majority, all you need to be is of age where you're mature enough to follow the law. Somebody says, hey, I want you to eat that, don't eat that. 
Show up there. Don't show up there. You got that? Sure. How, how, old, how old do you need to be to have a little responsibility, to be, to be responsible and mature enough? 12, 13. It's good enough, right? You don't need to be strong, military strong, right? You don't have to be able to defend your country because that's not how Judaism begins. Now, does Judaism in ancient, uh, does the Bible talk about the ancient Israelites forming an army? Sure. Does it talk about military age being from the age of 20? You bet it does. The Torah, the Torah says that military age for the Jewish soldier was from the age of 20. Very similar to other societies around, around the age of 20, 21 or 18. Right? Very similar. But that's not the foundation of Judaism. That's also, but that's not the foundation. And so a nation, the identity of a people goes by, sorry, the majority goes by the identity. So if your nation is all about military, so then you, you're only a member of the tribe when you're military age. In Judaism, you're an MOT, member of the tribe. You're an MOT as soon as you're mature enough to understand a little bit of responsibility, which is age 12, 13. By the way, does that, does that make sense? Yes? So far? Okay. By the way, this explains the next question. The next question is, why are girls bat mitzvah at age 12? And boys at age 13, right? Why not the same age? What's the deal with 12 for girls, boys 13? You know what the answer is? We just gave the answer. Somebody tell me the answer based on what we just said. I'll say it in Talmudic way. We just explained, you ready? We'll learn some Talmud, or at least we'll sing it in a Talmudic way. We just explained that the whole idea of majority in Judaism is age of maturity, responsibility. So why are girls bat mitzvah a year earlier? Help me out, because girls are? More mature, earlier. That's it. Look at that. Donna, you're ready for Talmud. Look at that. Yeah, because girls, at least the Jewish, in, in Jewish um, understanding. Say it again. You're talking about sexual maturity? No, we're talking about responsibility. Straight up responsibility. Listen, I got a bunch of boys. And are you responsible, Shia? Shalom, how old are you, bud? You're 11. You're almost 12. Are you ready to be responsible in a month or two? November. Yeah? No, you got to wait another year. Sorry, sorry, buddy. Sorry, my friend. But that, the physical, by the way, also, it's, it's all connected. When I say connected, that's not the meaning of it, but it all goes, girls in general, this is, at least the Jewish, this is the Jewish belief that, that girls are maturing earlier uh, um, than boys. Boys, listen, Listen, I, I love boys, right? There's nothing. <laughs> I got five of them of my own. Can I know her? Um, and then, of course, there's the princess, the youngest of the princess. Um, where's Riva? Is she around? Don't get. No, it's fine if she's sleeping. Don't wake her up. Anyway, it's fine. She'll be good. Um, you want to say hi? Why not? All right, this is Ellie. Ellie, say hi. hi. Shia, jump in. Dive in. Dive in. There you go. All right, these are two of my boys. Hi, Ellie. Guys, say hi. All right. There you go. Um, so, but the reality is that girls, at least in the Jewish understanding, girls are maturing faster. And that means, again, very specifically regarding the essence of Judaism, which is about responsibility. 
girls are maturing faster. Now, there's a really beautiful text that I want to share with you um, with this regard, and I'm about to do that right now. Yes. No. Okay, here we go. Oh, that's a text, an ancient text about the age of knighthood. All right, we're going to skip that. Here we go. Let's take a look. Here we go. Text number six. You ready, steady? Let's do this. Um, from Genesis. One of the most misunderstood verses of the entire Torah. Okay. I'm going to do a plug right now for the course that I mentioned earlier. One of the upcoming courses that we have is called Secrets of the Bible. We're going to be looking at biblical stories and completely re reading them and understanding them on a much, much, much deeper level than the Baba Mises than they, that they um, sometimes appear to be. One of them, one of the topics that we could spend a lot of time on is the story of Adam and Eve, which we will in that course, Secrets of the Bible. But let's focus on one detail right now. So it says in Genesis 2.22, it says that God built the side that he had taken from man into a woman. So God built the side. God took the side from man and he built that side that he took from man into a woman. All right. And, you know, everyone says, you know, um, Eve was created from Adam's rib. Have you heard that before? Yeah, the rib, the side, yeah, all, all that stuff. Here's the problem. You ready? The problem is that already in Genesis 1, the Torah says that God created the first human being, male and female. There you go. So now what? Now what do you do? Was it just Adam and then God took a rib and then did some surgery? Or was the first human being, male and female, back to back, which is, you could probably guess, which is our belief, and God kind of uh, split the two in, in, into two distinct beings. If that's the case, then what does it mean that God built the side? What does that even mean? I want to share with you the deeper meaning of this, which is found in the next text. Text number seven, the Talmud states, God built the side. What does that mean? If Eve anyway was created initially with Adam, they, they were split into two. So what does it mean God built the side? This teaches us that God bestowed earlier maturity upon the woman than he did upon the man. In the Hebrew, it's known as Bina Yesera. God gave Eve and gave women Bina Yesera, extra Bina, extra. This is here is translated as extra maturity or earlier maturity than man. This is a teaching from the Talmud, and this has always been the, uh, the Jewish belief that Women or girls, whatever, mature earlier than boys. And thus, the age of bat mitzvah, which signals the age of basic maturity. Can you be told something and be reasonably expected to follow instructions? Yeah, when does that happen? For a girl, it's 12. For a boy, it's uh, 22. Joking. Joking, not 22, because 22 is definitely no responsibility. It's much older than that. But at least, joking, but for bar mitzvah, we go with 13 for boys. Can't make them feel that bad, right? You can't make the boys feel, I mean, girls are ready at 12. Boys, we'll let you know. So we, we do it a year later. We have Rahmanus on, uh, on the boys. Anyway, I'm not picking on boys, by the way. I'm just, I'm just saying that when it comes to maturity and responsibility, girls 
are a year earlier than boys in Jewish, uh, Jewish tradition, and it reflects this notion of responsibility as opposed to other cultures and societies, including the United States of America, that are primarily founded on a military um, rationale. Again, a specific country might not be, but the, nation, the concept of nationhood in general from the beginning, from the inception of nations, was all about military, and therefore military age um, it confers uh, the age of majority, which is usually older, 18, 19, 20, 21, etc. Okay, makes sense? Yes? Yes, yes, yes? Go. Donna. So, you know, there are many women today that didn't have an opportunity to get Bosnitz, but it wasn't prevalent until recently. And then there are some men that, for whatever reason, they were not in a Jewish environment at that time. So, an adult B'nai Mitzvah, is that just something for fun or is it something real? It's an excellent question. That's a really, really good question. So here's, here's my short answer. And I don't want to take away any, anyone's fun or, or, um, or parties. But bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, based on how we just explained it, and I'm sorry if I'm, you know, whatever, stepping on any toes, it's not about a party at all. It's not about a sub. We also market and celebrate and whatever, but that's not the essence of what it is. What it is is... And if you didn't have a party, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, because if you turn 12, you turn 12. If you turn 13, you turn 13, whether you had a party or not, right? It happened. And when that happened, that was the age of responsibility. So it's not about the synagogue. It's not about a rabbi. It's not about a fountain pen. It's not about a kiddush cup. It's not about a this. It's not about a talit. It's not, that's not what makes a bar mitzvah. A bar mitzvah is the age upon which a boy is now responsible to keep the mitzvot because he's deemed mature enough. Bat mitzvah is the age, 12, when a girl is deemed obligated, responsible in the mitzvot because she's mature enough to have that responsibility. That's what it is. So everyone above 12 and 13 did have their bar bat mitzvah, even if they didn't have a party. Now, if somebody says, but I want a party, I want to do something to show, I, I, no problem, but... Let's remember what's what's you know what what we're talking about. The bar and bat mitzvah itself happens either way. The celebration, marking it, doing something for it, um, that that uh, that certainly could be done at any point, and you know why not? It's it's a good thing. Listen, here's here's my rule of thumb: if it leads to something positive, or if it is something positive, by all means. If it's a distraction, then you know whatever. Along those lines of distraction, I would say we have to be very careful. Look, nowadays, um, you know, everything, we live in a different world right now, and uh, barbat mitzvahs are not happening on the, anywhere close to what it looked like a year or two ago, or a year ago. Um, but look, I've been to many bar mitzvahs. I've been to many, many bar mitzvahs. I've thrown a few myself. Um, I know some of you have been at my, my son's bar mitzvahs. Look, here's the deal. We try to be very focused with our own sons, and... Anyone who goes to our community also try to, you know, impress upon them the same idea that it's, it's a significant milestone. It's not really about the DJ and the party. Not trying to take away anyone's fun, but that's not what bar mitzvah is. Bar mitzvah is, it's an age of, of responsibility. It's an age of passing the torch. And you can now hold on to the torch with fire. I mean, not in a negative way, but you're now, you're now trusted. Go ahead, run that lap. You know, we're, you're, we're, we're cheering you on. Now you got this. That's, it's a coming of age. It's like a beautiful, beautiful coming of age moment. 
The question is if sometimes it gets lost in, uh, in all of the accoutrements, in all of the, you know, the, um, the pyrotechnics, if it sometimes can get a little bit lost, the main, the main point of it. And again, that's, this is more of like a fabreng and more of like, um, you know, if you would have a conversation about, you know, uh, the essence of a bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah and what's the best way to, to you know, to manage the, the, um, the experience or whatever, we could talk more about that, but that's, that's the short of it. So I, I wanted to just mention that because I think it follows very closely with your question, which is a great question. I would say like this, if somebody feels like, you know, they didn't have a bat mitzvah and they feel like they'll want to do something, like I said before, by all means, if it's going to lead to something positive, learning and studying and whatever it is, why not? Right? It's always good to, to learn more and to do more. Um, but, you, but one shouldn't feel bad necessarily, not, not even as, one shouldn't feel bad about not having the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah because one did. <laughs> whether they knew about it or not, whether there was a DJ hired or not, it happened. So, so, but again, if somebody wants to take on a learning commitment and, and, and learn something in preparation for whatever milestone, by all means. Okay. Can I ask a question? Yeah. You can answer some other time, perhaps when we meet. Sure. There's a concept in English law, at least, that it typically is the age of seven, which is called in English law the, typically the age of reason, in which uh, the person speaking to you went out at the age of eight and drew lipstick all over some neighbor's wall over her house. Okay, my father was not responsible for my actions. Right, I was, uh, and, and I thought the, the bar mitzvah, or not at the bar mitzvah, but the but the age issue was conferring responsibility rather than recognizing it. Yeah, yeah, it's really both. It's really both. But you're you're correct. Bar and bat mitzvah is about recognizing. Yes, you are ready, and therefore. Here's the responsibility. In Jewish law, punishment, if you will, I don't want to get negative, but consequence is not meted out until age 20. But responsibility begins in age 13 or 12. Now you're going to say, well, what kind of responsibility is there without consequence? That's going to lead into a, a larger discussion. But the short of it is the, the maturity is there at 12 or 13, give or take. Um, and therefore, the responsibility is given. In fact, by the way, at a bar mitzvah, there's a blessing that the father, traditional blessing, that the father of the bar mitzvah uh, um, says at the Torah, by the Torah reading, Baruch Shepetrani Mi'onesh Halazeh, which is, blessed, blessed be God, who is absolving me of this, of the, you know, liability, of this liability. Um, it's a funny, it's, I know, funny, it, it's, listen, it's um it's one of the more colorful things at a uh, at a bar mitzvah, um, and just uh, we we had you know our synagogue Chabad in town we reopened, um, and you know we're being cautious and whatever we had a bar mitzvah very small bar mitzvah a few weeks ago, we actually had back to back two different families and it was very very small we had like only family and you know social distancing and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, in these times, it kind of gets back to the core. Because like, no one's partying, I mean, hopefully not, right? With like, DJ Rave, Saturday night, you know, teen party. 
uh, it's, not, it's not happening. So it really gets back to the core, and it's a powerful thing, you know, for the father to, to look at the child and to turn to God and the Torah and, and, you know, the synagogue and say, hey, buddy, you're on your own. I mean, I made a joke a few weeks ago. Um, uh, you know, I hope you have your, because uh, when he said, like, you know, you're now on your own kind of, I'm like, I hope you have your own place, you know, to live. But, you know, that was a joke because you don't actually kick him out at 12 or 13. You usually wait a year or two. Um, that's also a joke. Anyway, the point is that, yes, the responsibility also begins then. Let's jump, oh, this is great. Let's jump in to the next question, which is about Passover. You know, the high holidays are coming up. We're going to talk about the high holidays soon. But Passover is always around the corner, right? I mean, this past Passover was an interesting one. Very, very strange Passover. Um, but you know, you couldn't have guests this Passover, except for one. You know who that was? One guest that you could definitely have. Elijah. 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 Elijah the prophet. Oh yeah, you got it. Elijah doesn't know from Corona. What kind of Corona business? He's like, I'm showing up. You better have my wine poured for me. Or else, I'm kidding, Elijah's warm and cuddly. Look, it's our tradition on, at the Passover Seder that we drink four cups of wine or grape juice and we pour a fifth, put it on the table. We don't drink it. We just shake the table a little bit and tell the kids, look, the wine went down. Look, it's, it's not as full as it was. Um, and then we open up the door after we pour the fifth cup of wine. We open up the door and we welcome in Elio Anavi, Elijah the prophet. And everyone asks the same question. And if you haven't, I'm sure you've thought of it. Why in the world are we pouring a fifth cup? What is, what is this? What's the, what's the deal with the fifth cup? Or I have to ask it as why. Why the fifth cup? Why is it Elijah's cup? So many questions. What's going on here? All right, so let's talk about Elijah the prophet. Let's get a better understanding of who he was because knowing a little bit more about him will help us understand why it is that we pour him a cup, a tall glass of wine, and why we open up the door for his spirit to enter. What's the deal with that? I want to share with you the following ideas. There are three things that we know about Elijah. The first is that he is the Mavasar Hagu'ula. The first thing is that we know about him is that he will be the one that comes to the world and says, by the way, the Messiah has arrived. He is the one to carry the news about the Messiah. This is found in the, in the book, in the uh, prophecy of Malachi, text 8a. And here's what it says. God says, I am sending to you Elijah the prophet before the day of God comes. What is the day of God? It means the coming of Mashiach, the coming of the Messiah. Elijah the prophet comes before the Messiah arrives. Mavasar Gula, the one to herald, the one to welcome in that era. So that's the first thing we know. Number one. The second thing we know about, about Elijah. Sorry? Can he go to heaven alive? Yes. Well, yes. We're not going to focus on that right now. But yes, he has a very colorful life. And even the end of his life, he rides off in a chariot of fire to, um, to the heavens. But we're not going to focus on that tonight. Take a look at the second thing that we know about 
about, about, about Elijah. I'm going to skip this text. We don't need this for right now. Text number nine. Here's what we know about Elijah. There's a, there's a Talmudic phrase, a Talmudic word that is this word, teku. The Talmud says teku. Sometimes it asks a question. It says teku. So here, the, here, what does that mean? Whenever the Talmud does not know the answer to a question, it says teku. This is a cognate of tick satchel. Just as when a book is in its satchel, we do not know what's inside. So too, we do not know the answer to the question. This explanation is given by Rabbi Nathan of Rome in his Aruch. So that's an ancient explanation of the word teku in the Talmud. However, and this is what we want to get to, some say teku is an acronym for the four Hebrew words, Elijah will resolve questions and problems. Tishbi yitaretz kushiois v'iboyois. That is the other alternative understanding of teku. If you look at the Hebrew, if you can read the Hebrew, it's this last line of the Hebrew. Teku, taf, yod, kuvav, these four letters, or this word with four letters, are the first letters of these four words. Tishbi, yitaretz, kushiois, v'iboyois. And that means that Tishbi, Elijah, Eliyah, right. Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu HaTishbi. Elijah is Tishbi. So Tishbi, Elijah the Tishbite, the Tishbi, will yitaritz, will answer kushes v'yibayis, questions and problems. So what the second thing we know about Elijah is that when we're stuck with a problem, he will be the one when Mashiach comes to answer up all our questions. So number one, he's going to herald the coming of the Messiah. Number two, he will answer our questions. What's the third thing we know about him? I'm going to stop sharing and tell you a little bit of a story. The third thing we know about, the third thing we know about Elijah the prophet is the experience, the episode where he chastised the Jewish people. I need to give you a little bit of background. I don't want to give you too much because it's going to take too much time, but a little bit of background information. Um, the Jews, the Jewish people, did not always remain monotheistically faithful. Yeah, you understand what I'm saying with that? Yeah, Jews did not always remain monotheistically plugged in. There were times when the Jews strayed. And not only the Jews, but even the, even the kings. There were some Jewish kings who were into idols, idolatry. Famous or infamous Jewish kings that were all about the idolatry. It is, it is what it is. It's, I mean, it's the fact of history. As uh, impossible as it sounds, you know, if there's one thing about Judaism that we know, it's monotheism. Nonetheless, there was the challenge of, uh, of, of monotheism that presented itself to many generations of Jews in ancient times. And Elijah, in his time as prophet, would rail against those that served the idols, including the idol of Baal and other idols, um, Baal was one of the names of the idols, and he would fiercely oppose idolatry, saying this is wrong, and that's not what God wants, and you're going against God, and it's not going to be good, etc., etc., etc. And he was in a fight with the king. Who was the king? The king was... Um, the queen was Ezebel, Jezebel. Who was the king? Who remembers Baal. the... Huh? Ray, what'd you say? I don't remember, sorry. The name is um, Izevel, Jezebel, and, okay, whatever. Someone, someone Wikipedia, look it up. Um, Queen Jezebel's husband. 
Bottom line is, oh, Ahab, Achav, Ahab, right? Yes? Achav, Ahab, A-H-A-B? Yes? All right, thank you. King Achav. In Hebrew, it's Achav and Izevel. So Achav was, he, he married a, a woman, Izevel. She was into idols. He married her. He also got into idols. You know, today we have American idols. Then they had Israel, whatever they had. They were into idols, and it was a whole thing. And Elijah is railing against the, the king, essentially, and the queen. And they're upset at him, and they want to kill him. And he's hiding from them. He hid from them for many years. All of this drama because they were into idols and he was railing against it, you know, speaking, if you will, the word of God against idolatry. It was ugly. Um, at a certain point in time, Elijah the prophet challenges 200, I think it was 250, whatever, it was a few hundred prophets of the Baal. Basically like um, priests of, of idolatry, Jewish priests of idolatry. I know it boggles the mind. It is what it is. I mean, it's, it's a fact. He challenges them to a, um, a battle royale. Last man st standing is the winner. We're all going to bring offerings to our, to our God, or whatever gods, so to speak, on top of a mountain, Mount Carmel, and whoever's offering is taken will be the one that, that, that demonstrates the truth. And they brought their offering, and they... They, they, it was all about like whichever offering is consumed by fire, a heavenly fire. They tried, they failed, and Elijah tried, and of course he was successful. And he says, you see, God is the only true God. And the people said, yes, Hashem Elohim, God is the only God. And in that moment, there was clarity. But the next day, they went back to serving idols because that's how seductive it was for them. It was a challenge. Like you and I, um, our society, we have other challenges. I don't know that anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I must worship an idol. I have to bow down to an idol. But we have other cravings, you know, physical cravings that we do have. You know, everyone has their own vices, so I'll, I'll leave it up to you, right? But, you know, like that carnal, almost carnal desire, they had that carnal desire for worshiping idols. We can't relate to it. But that's the way it was then, and that was the challenge. The people were addicted to it, and they went back to it shortly thereafter. Upon which Elijah said to God, I can't, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm trying. I'm the only voice of reason. The people have gone off the rails. I tried to do a public demonstration on top of a mountain in front of everybody, and it didn't work long term. They're back to serving idols. I'm the only one, he says. That's kept your covenant. Everyone else has abandoned it. It's at that point that God says to Elijah, you're done. You're finished. God says to Elijah, go ahead and find another prophet to appoint. And he finds Elisha. He appoints Elisha as the prophet. And ultimately, Elijah passes away or goes up to heaven. And Elisha takes over. Elisha is a man of the people. Elijah was the one who said to God, the people have abandoned you, only I have kept your covenant. When Elijah goes to heaven, God says to Elijah, Elijah, you told me that my people have abandoned my covenant. Every single experience of affirming the covenant, you're going back down to witness. You know a Brit Milah circumcision ceremony? Yeah, you know, there's a tradition that Elijah is at the bris. You know why? 
Because Elijah said that the people have abandoned the covenant. And God says, really? You're going to show up to the next bris, to the next circumcision. Which bris means, literally bris means covenant. Doesn't mean circumcision. Bris means covenant. Mila means circumcision. Brit mila, covenant of the circumcision. Brit is covenant. Bris, Brit is covenant. God says to Elijah, you're denying the covenant. You're saying that Jews have abandoned the covenant. You're going to be the witness. You're going to be the front seat. Every single bris, I'm sending you down. Now we have a nice picture of Elijah. Three ideas. I'm going to summarize. Number one, heralds the redemption. Number two, answers difficult questions. Number three, he bears, he's meant to witness our affirmation of the covenant. And that's why he shows up at the Seder and we pour him a glass of wine for all three reasons. Number one, Passover celebrates freedom and redemption. It's not the ultimate redemption. It's not the Messiah. It's not Mashiach, but it is redemption. So who has a front seat? Who has a front row seat? There we go. Front row seat to the experience of retelling the Exodus and the redemption. Elijah, he's all redemption energy. And there's a question in Jewish law, should it be four cups or five cups? That's why we pour a fifth cup, but don't drink it. Are you with me? Let me say that. I'm going to rewind and say it one more time. In Jewish law, we don't have time to get into why, but in Jewish law, there's a question, a halakha question, whether we drink on Passover night at the Seder, four cups or five cups? Four or five? So what do we do in practice? We pour and drink four. We pour the fifth, but don't drink it. Who's going to answer the question when Mashiach comes about the fourth or fifth? You guessed it, Elijah. And who's the one that needs to bear testimony that the Jews are still remembering the Exodus, which is also a symbol of their covenant, of their, of their embracing God and, and, and their destiny? Who's got the front row seat for that? Once again, you guessed it, it's Elijah. So for all three reasons, Elijah is the perfect guest to have at your Seder, whether it's times of Corona or not times of Corona, whether you're having other guests or whether you're in lockdown, you still open your door carefully and you let in Elijah because Elijah is about the redemption. He's answering questions and he needs to see that despite his protest, despite his indignation, we haven't abandoned God. Judaism is still alive. Elijah, we love you, man, but you ain't the only one keeping keeping fast uh, to the thing. By the way, this is I think I know we framed it in the context of uh, a Passover. But if you ever wonder why there's um, at, at a Brit Milah there's the seat of Elijah, like literally the seat that the that the chair of Elijah that you do the Brit Milah on. Why is it called chair of Elijah? For this reason, Elijah said to God, "The people have abandoned your covenant," and God says to Elijah, "Hold my beer. I'm going to show you." How the people have not abandoned my covenant. You may be upset. You may be, you know, irritated. You might not be happy with, you know, everything that the people are doing. But abandon my covenant. That's going a little too far. So God says to him two things. Number one, it's time to find a, a protege who can understand the people a little bit better. Number one. And number two, I'm going to show you how we can say this today. Thousands of years later... Jewish people are still alive and plugged in. Any questions about Elijah? Questions, comments? Okay. Let's say L'chaim. This is at least a purple can. <laughs> Seltzer. Blackberry bubbly. L'chaim. Bubbly. Riva, come say hi. You got to say hi. 
the princess is, is approaching. Come. Come say hi. All right. We're about to move on to our next question. Oh, this is a good one. This is a really good question. The question has to do with prayer and has to do with the high holiday season, as we will explain in a moment. But first, everybody say hi. Oh, there you go. All right. Down you go. Enjoy your smoothie. <laughs> okay. Jumping right back in. So high holiday season, there is a tradition. Hey, bud. There is a tradition in Jewish law. It's actually written in the Code of Jewish law that before Rosh Hashanah, before the high holidays, which, by the way, is coming up super, super soon, like a week and a half, um, before Rosh Hashanah, the custom is to pray by the gravesite of a righteous individual. So it's literally the custom to go to a cemetery where a tzaddik or tzaddikim, righteous people, are buried and to pray there. And in that merit, our prayers have special powers. The question is, what's the deal with the prayers of a... Okay, soon, soon. What's the deal with the with the prayers of, of a tzaddik. Like, what's, what's the deal? Whether, you know, people go to a tzaddik and ask for blessings while um, the tzaddik's alive or go to the gravesite and pray at the cemetery, what's the deal with the prayer of tzaddikim? And, and really the premise of the question is, why are my prayers not enough? Why is it helpful to, um, to seek out the assistance of a righteous individual a tzaddik, whether alive or whether in the cemetery, what's the deal with that? So I want to share with you, I want to share with you um, the following text. Um, no, not right now. Okay, so let's share the following text. I think it's going to be text 15, but let's find it inside. Uh, we're skipping a bunch of texts, don't worry. Um, boom, boom. Oh, by the way. Here's the quote, text 10. In case you were wondering, the quote from, uh, from Elijah. I know, sorry, sorry for opening up old, uh, old ideas. I have been very zealous for God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. That's what Elijah says to God, and upon which God says, all right, I'm going to show you. Um, let's go, let's skip this, let's skip this. Here we go. All right, you ready for this? Let's jump in. Um, let me make my screen bigger so we can all read this. Throughout the Torah and Prophets, remember, let me reset the question. Why do we, you know, ask the tzaddik to pray on our behalf? What's the deal with that? Tzaddik means righteous person. Throughout the Torah and Prophets, we find that Jews petitioned their prophets to pray for them in times of trouble. When the complainers were played by fire, in the Torah, the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to God, and the fire died down. It seems that their cry to Moses was that he should pray for them, which he did, and God heard his prayer. So it is with Samuel. And the entire nation said to Samuel, Pray on behalf of your servants to God, that we may not, might not die, for we have added to our wickedness by petitioning for a king. Similarly, King Zedekiah, Sitkio, petitioned Jeremiah, Yermio, 
Uh, and he said, please pray to God for us. Also, the military officers beseeched Jeremiah, may our supplications come before you so that you might pray to God for us. Similarly, we find in the Talmud that Rabban Gamliel sent emissaries to petition Rabbi Hanina Bendosa to pray on behalf of his ill son. Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zake also petitioned Rabbi Hanina, saying, Hanina, my son, beg for mercy so that he might live. And so it was in all other generations. So what we find is that there are many instances in Scripture, in the Torah itself, in the books of the prophets, in the Talmud, where people chose to ask others to pray on their behalf in addition, not instead of, but in addition to their own prayers. Let me stop sharing for a moment and ask the following question. It's a bit, yeah, it's, I don't know if it's a personal question, but it's certainly a question directed to, to us here. Who in this room, in this, uh, in this class, has ever asked someone to pray on their behalf? Yes? Okay. Right? People will ask a rabbi. I've been asked countless times to pray for people. Um, people ask uh, others. People go to, the, like I said before, go to the gravesite of righteous people who have passed on to ask for their intervention, so to speak, on high. You know, their soul to intervene um, and intercede on high. So the, really the question is, what's the deal with the, the, the additional help? Why not just pray on our own? So let's continue... Let's see if we have some more, some more information. Text 15 is going to help us unpack this idea. When we appeal, look what he says. Careful. When we appeal to angels in various prayers, it is only out of a sense of humbleness and servitude. It is similar to when we, when we speak before the king and ask his advisors to beseech him because we are too awestruck to approach the king. This is in no way intermediation. This is a very important text and it highlights a very important Jewish belief. In Judaism, we do not believe that, that you and I do not have a direct line to God. I'm sorry for the double negative on that. We, but Judaism believes that you and I have a direct connection to the source. We do not need an intermediary. So why is it then that sometimes we ask people or souls or angels even on some level to pray for us on our behalf? It's only because we're too awestruck, standing, so to speak, before the king to utter the right words that we say, look, you can help me out. You know more how this works. So you can, you know, if you can please pray on my behalf. But it's not an intermediary. It's more of like a, what would, what would a good English term? I don't, I don't know what the, what the right English term is. But it's not someone that's in between you and God. It's someone that is representing but not getting in the way. There's two ways. You know, you can be... You know, whenever you're dealing with a middle person so, or a third party, they could either get in the way or they can help make the connection between the two parties. Are you with me in the distinction? Right? Either that third party is like getting in between and filtering information and you're not sure what you're getting, there's no, but there's not a direct connection, or that third party is actually 
just facilitating a healthy connection between the two parties. And that's really the role of a tzaddik, that's the role of, you know, of, of, of anyone that's praying for someone else. It's not to get in the way, but it's kind of like to help bolster that connection between the one who needs and God. Are all of our prayers always answered the way we would like them to be answered? Not always. Not always do we see the revealed blessings that we're asking for. But it doesn't stop us from praying. We still pray. And it doesn't stop us from seeking out whatever angles we can, you know, with those that, uh, that, can, that can make certain connections. Okay, but it's very important to, to know that it's not like this is a, a fundamental Jewish belief that, other, that certain individuals have more access or whatever it is. Everyone has equal access. Um, but sometimes it's helpful because of the, of the moment. We're not sure what to say or how to go about it. Sometimes it's helpful to have someone who is, you know, a little bit familiar with that and a little bit, uh, you know, someone who can maybe pull some strings as well. So that is, oh, hey, that is, that is the, uh, the deeper meaning of prayer petitions. Okay. Related question, and a question that you might have wondered about Chabad. Um, in general, I've, I've got this question, I've received this question many times. You know, in Chabad, Chabad another word for Chabad is Lubavitch. Chabad Lubavitch. Just to explain that, by the way, that you might wonder, like, what's, what's the deal with that, or why two names? Chabad is the philosophy. Lubavitch was a city in white Russia where the movement was headquartered for a while. So Chabad is the philosophy, Lubavitch is the city. The Chabad has always had a Rebbe, as, it, as other Hasidic groups also have Rebbes. A Rebbe is a spiritual leader. And the question is that many, the question that many has is, have is, what's the deal with a Rebbe? Like that sounds a little like, uh, like what, what's, up, what's up with that? I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but what's the, what's, the, what's the need for a Rebbe? What's the concept of a Rebbe? What's the deal with that? So I want to share with you a very interesting text that is actually sharing a little bit of a, uh, of a dialogue that the Rebbe had with somebody about the role, about the role of a Rebbe. Take a look at... Here we go. Take a look at, at text 18. Interview with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Here we go. Question. What was the role that the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the Hasidic movement, what was the role that the Baal Shem Tov played in the Hasidic movement? The, Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe answered, we can understand what the Baal Shem Tov did by the simile of the relationship of an electric powerhouse with a lamp that is connected to it by a wire. In order to light his lamp, one must find the right switch or push the correct button. The soul of every Jew is a part of and is connected with God Almighty. But in order that one can enjoy the great benefits of it, the correct switch must be found or the proper button pushed. It was the Baal Shem Tov's mission to explain and proclaim that every Jew without exception is connected with the powerhouse and every one of them has a switch in his innermost in his innermost, I don't know, in the, in the innermost point, I, I'm just going to add some words, part of his being, that will be found if searched for. Follow-up question was, what is the function of a Rebbe? The Rebbe says, as was said earlier, to find the switch in every Jew and to help him become connected with 
the powerhouse. So let me just explain what that is. Again, it's a similar, along the lines of what we said about prayer, is that every one of us has a direct connection with God. It's like there's a direct connection. You plug in your lamp, and it's connected. The lamp is connected with electricity, which is connected to the power plant. There's a direct line of wires. There's a direct connection. But the, la- the lamp is still not lit. What's the problem? You got to turn. You know those, those old lamps where you have the little thing that you turn? You know what I'm talking about? Not the one the push buttons. That's like too new school. I'm talking about the one that had like the plastic bumps on it or the metal bumps, the grip turn. You know what I'm talking about? That you turn it like a quarter turn. Yeah, your fingers, you got to get in there like under the lampshade. The bulb is hot because this is incandescent era. Remember the era of incandescent. Yeah, you touch those things, you're done. You're done for. So you got to get in there. You got to turn it and get it at the right angle to get it on or off. Good. So it's connected. There's no deficiency in the connection, but it's not lit. You got to turn. You got to. You got to turn the switch. You got to. You got to give it a knetch. Problem is, sometimes we don't know which button to press. <laughs> we press other buttons, but not that button. Right? How do you know with spiritually which button to press? That's where a Rebbe, a real spiritual mentor comes in. A Rebbe says, let me show you what the switch is. Not to get in the way and not to, you know, not to, not to interrupt the connection, but to, get, to inspire each one of us to turn on the switch of our own lamp so that our soul, so that our soul can shine super brightly in our own lives. All right. Now, let's... Make sense? Yes? So that's, again, a short treatment of the notion of prayer on behalf of others or asking others to pray for us. It's not for us. It's, you know, to help boost. And also the notion of the concept of a, of a rabbi, a Hasidic leader, etc. It's not to get in the way. It's only to help inspire one to find their own connection with God. Now, I want to show you, not show you, let's explore, ooh, this is good, another Passover-related question, but a question that you might have wondered going through the Passover Haggadah. But first, I noticed some chats. Oh, proxy. That's a good word. Proxy. Um, Not to be confused with epoxy. That's, uh, if you mess those up, it's going to be a sticky situation. (sighs) Folks, I'm here all week. Next is a discussion about the Haggadah. Pull, you don't have to pull out um, your copy right now, but if you have a Maxwell House Haggadah, who has a Maxwell House Haggadah? Yeah, Maxwell House. Who has, um, I don't know, that's like the most famous. Whatever. Get your favorite, my pleasure, my pleasure. Get your favorite Haggadah out and you'll notice something that is quite phenomenal. And that is that... There is no mention of a certain character of the Passover story in the Haggadah. And that character is Moses. You're not going to believe me when I say it, but fact check me. Open up your your Haggadah, your little Passover Seder book, you know, a company book, program guide. Open it up, read through the story. Moses is glaringly absent in the entire narrative. We talk about Pharaoh, we talk about the Jewish people, we talk about God, all of the above. We talk about the plagues. Everything is mentioned. No Moses. It's like Moses was popped out of the whole, the whole Seder, the whole Agada. No mention. There's one mention. There's one mention, but it's like an indirect mention. 
that we're quoting a verse or we're reciting, I don't know, one of the, maybe Hallel, one of the verses of praise, and it mentions Moses' name in a verse. But it's not in the, in the context of the narrative of telling the story. It's like it happened to be smuggled into a verse somewhere, but it's not at all about the narrative. You would think that, look, any movie, okay, let's just be straight here. You watch the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Who played Moses? Charlton Heston, right? Did he have a speaking role? Of course he had a speaking role. Did he have the main role? Absolutely had the main role. Why? Because you don't have a story of Exodus without Moses. But you know what? Open up your Haggadah. I ch challenge is given. Gauntlet has been put down. Get out your Haggadah. Flip through it. Zero, what? One mention, indirect mention of Moses. Otherwise, gone. Moses free. The Haggadah has gone. Moses free. And the question is, how do you have Exodus, the story of, of Egypt, plagues, Exodus, without Moses? How do you cut out Moses? You know what's astonishing? So the question, the why question is, why is Moses' name omitted from the Haggadah? Pretty much. You know what the bigger question is? Or just as big? You ready for this? Why is it? Why is it that no one asked this question until a few hundred years ago? For thousands of years, thou literally thousands of years, we've been celebrating Passover with a Seder, with a Haggadah, and Moses is not there. And it's only in the like a few hundred years where this question first came up. It's very bizarre. Like Moses is gone. It's like, how do you, how do you not mention Moses? Like, throughout the whole thing. And then if he's not there, shouldn't that have been the first flag that's raised? Like, yo, hey, oh, like, what's, what's, what's the plan here? What happened to Moses? That should have been the first question asked. Not like Jews are afraid to ask questions. I mean, so what's going on? I want to share with you two, two perspectives. Perspective number one. You ready for this? It's very interesting. Perspective number one is found in... In, uh, in this commentary from the 1800s. Take a look. Text 21. Throughout the entire story of the Exodus at the, at the Seder, Passover, we do not mention Moses, God forbid, because it is forbidden to attribute a partner to God. We do not praise Moses, but God alone. You understand what he's saying? At the Seder, we don't want to confuse ourselves or be mistaken to think that Moses was pulling the strings. Moses was only the representative. He was only the servant of God, you know, the tool that was helping facilitate or whatever, but it wasn't coming from him. So in order to be very clear on that fact, we don't mention Moses. In a sense, we don't deify Moses. We don't elevate Moses to divine status. And one way to do that is by not mentioning him in the entire story of the Exodus on Passover. It therefore says, they believed in God and in Moses' his servant. That is not, this is not said to speak of Moses' greatness. On the contrary, this conveys that the Jews believed that God did everything and that Moses was nothing but his humble servant, that he was like all creatures in the world that are obligated to do God's will. So God tells him, I need you to be the one to speak to Pharaoh. You should lift your staff and then the plague is going to happen. So Moses does it. Moses is obedient, but he's not doing it. 
He's just doing the actions, following God's orders. Make sense? So the first answer, we're going to have two answers. The first answer, why is Moses missing? Because we don't want people or us to misconstrue and think that Moses is divine-like. Like who brought the plagues? It was Moses. Moses was, had supernatural powers. God ran the show. Moses just facilitated. Listen, I'm not knocking Moses, but just the point is that to have clarity, that's why Moses' name is omitted. That's the first answer. The problem with this answer is, it's not like the participants of the Seder don't have access to a Torah or to a, you know, to a Bible. And you open up the Torah and Moses' name is everywhere. So if there's a danger of deifying Moses, if that's the concern, well then what are you going to do? Go in and sanitize Torah as well? You're going to take out Moses' name from the Torah? If you're not doing that, then why once a year are you being very careful? Are you with me in my question? In other words, if Moses is there in the Torah anyway, Moses, 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 Marsha, 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 then, Brady Bunch joke, then why is it that we suddenly are all, you know, um, um, up in arms when it comes to the Seder that we have to take Moses' name out? Seems like there's something a little bit missing here. So, in addition to Moses... So, um, I want to share with you another perspective. And that is text number 22. Here we go. Once when Rabbi, Meir, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Meir, the Chafetz Chaim, one of the great scholars of the 1800s, was reciting the Haggadah on the first night of Passover, he pointed out to those dining with him the fact that Moses' name is not mentioned in the Haggadah even once. It is once, but indirectly despite the fact that the entire miracle of the Exodus transpired through him. And he explained that this teaches us that God fulfills the wishes of those who are in awe of him. And because Moses was the most humble person to ever live, his name is not associated with the miracle. In other words, on Passover night, it's actually, it's not because we're concerned that people will deify Moses, but because Moses himself didn't want himself to be his name, to have his own name in lights. It was never about him. Moses never wanted to make it about him. So therefore, as Passover became a holiday, so Moses' wish to remain a little bit on the down low is, is, uh, is um, respected, and therefore his name is not found, pretty much is not found in the Haggadah on Passover night at the Seder. The message, of course, for us is the value of doing good for the sake of good and not for recognition so the idea of anonymity and, uh, and doing things for the right reasons and not for self-gain. Make sense? Yes? Okay, I want to do one more thing. One more, one more quick question and answer. We're right at the time. So let's talk about food one, one more time. Last question. Why are Jewish celebrations always associated with food? It's without fail. Bar mitzvah, coming of age, responsibility. What, what are you serving at the Kiddush? <laughs> what's the what's the menu like? Yeah, always a, even a meeting, a Jewish meeting. There's always food involved. A meeting, you can't have a meeting without food. If if the participants of a meeting at a Jewish meeting show up and there's no food, meeting's canceled. If someone forgot to pick up the bagels, we're done here. The board is adjourned. Not happening. Synagogue, the budget, major decisions. It doesn't matter. No food. No deal. No conversation. What's with the food, especially with regard? to Jewish celebrations, whether it's Shabbat, whether it's the Jewish holidays, whether it's a life cycle event, what's the deal with the food? I'm not complaining, by the way. God forbid to complain about the food, but the question is, why? Why, why the prominence of food? So I want to share with you this final message, which I think is a powerful message, and echoes, brings together a lot of the themes 
of our course in the prior 49 or so topics. The goal was to cover 50. We got very close. I think we did between 45 and 50 topics in. So in short, the goal of our lives from God's perspective, right? The intention is to live a life that's plugged in spiritually, but that also affects our material existence by uplifting it to make it also meaningful. In other words, the idea is to fuse, to connect heaven and earth, spirit and matter, the spiritual and the physical. It's not about having escapist, um, escapism, escape uh, experiences, spiritual experience, you know, meditate on top of a mountain and then come back and back to, back to normal. We're not meant to have escape moments and not meant to have, you know, only lowly moments. We're meant to bridge the two, that our physical actions should be imbued with meaning and that our spiritual actions should always be about a practical benefit to somebody here on planet Earth. It should never be too theoretical, but always very practical. So along these lines, if you're excited about Shabbat, sorry, if you're spiritually excited about Shabbat, if you're spiritually excited about a holiday, if you're spiritually excited about a life cycle event, if you're on a spiritual high, it always needs to connect back down with the physical experience as well. And so as the soul celebrates, we have to also make sure that the body also celebrates. And so we feed the soul and we feed the body at the same time. So the soul is enjoying Shabbat and the body enjoys the Kiddush. The soul enjoys the bar mitzvah, the wedding, the brit milah, whatever it is, the life cycle event, and the body enjoys the shmorg. That's how it works. That's how, that's how, that's how it works in Judaism. So it's not, you know, oh, Jews, you know, obsessed with food. It, there's a much deeper idea here. It's about all, every spiritual high has to be grounded in also a physical experience that also benefits the world. So... When you throw a kiddush, you invite a few. At least uh, even during Corona, make sure to invite uh, something. By the way, it's important. I, I need to mention along these lines, and some of you may know this in Jewish law. You know Sheva Brachos? You know that term Sheva Brachos or Sheva Brachot? It's the seven-day celebration following the wedding. So in Judaism, we don't just have a wedding, but there's like another six days of celebration afterwards, totaling seven days of celebration after the wedding. Um, and each day or each evening, after the wedding, for those seven days, there's a meal and guests, and it's a whole party. I mean, the chassan and kal, the bride and groom, really, after seven days, all you want to do is, you know, kind of like, folks, it's been real, it's been great, <laughs> gotta go, gotta get to our lives, it's been, it's been hectic, because every night, you're celebrating with friends and family, and it's, but one interesting thing is like this, in order to be considered a sheva brachot, in order to be considered a, a legitimate celebration meal of, 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 of festivity in honor, of the, in honor of the Simcha, you have to have what's called Panim Chadashos, which means a fresh face. You have to have a new person, a new person, a person that hadn't been at the, that wasn't at the wedding or wasn't at one of the previous nights of celebration. It has to be somebody new. In other words, as we celebrate in spirit, we also celebrate in body. And as we celebrate, celebrate in body, we have to make sure that we're sharing it with at least one new person. And that, I want to end with this note, that Judaism is all about connecting on high, but also connecting right here in a real way and also sharing the blessings with others. Without others, we can't truly enjoy the blessings. I want to end with this idea. The word, I, maybe I said this before. I may have said this, but if I said it, it'll just be reinforcement. And if I didn't, 
then it's new. Either way, it's good. Chai and Chaim. Did I mention this point? Both mean life. Chai is life and Chaim. Maybe I mentioned this in the numerology course. Chai means life. Chaim also means life. What's the difference? The word Chaim is plural. We say Lechaim, right? To life, it really means to lives, plural, or to life's, plural. Why the plural? Because in Judaism, we believe that the true blessing of life is when life and gifts are shared with someone else. It's when we're able to share that and connect with another person, that's when the true joy is. There are two bodies of water in Israel. One is the Dead Sea and the other one is the Jordan, yes? No. What is it? The Kinneret. The sorry, the Kinneret, right. So we have the Kinneret and the Dead Sea. What's the difference? The Dead Sea ends. It dead ends. And it's salt and it can't grow anything. It's dead. It doesn't support life. But the Kinneret flows through to somewhere else. And when we're, on, when we're connecting with something else, that's when we have the true, that's when life is truly experienced. So my final words to you in this course is, may we have all the blessings that we need and all the blessings that we want for good, right? All the blessings that are kosher and legal and, and, and uh, divinely ordained, we should have this year. And then we should take our blessings and our gifts and share them with others because in that way we can truly celebrate and enjoy when we're sharing that with others. That's it for this, I, for this course. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the, the, um, the range of questions and you know, the, the potpourri of, uh, of ideas. I hope it was meaningful. I hope it was you know, mind, mind uh, you know, thought-provoking and mind-expanding. And I hope this. If some of the answers maybe raised more questions, I hope that you'll take the opportunity to continue to question. Because like as I said at the beginning of the course, Judaism is all about asking questions and looking for answers. And even if we don't get the answers, we ask more questions. And when we do get answers, we certainly ask more questions on top of those answers because it's all about the process of learning and learning happens through questions. So never stop asking, never stop seeking, never stop searching, never stop growing, never stop learning. Let's continue the, uh, uh, the energy for it. And along those lines, I'll just mention one more time, we have a new course starting right after the holidays called Secrets of the Bible. I know I'm looking around this room. I know many of you were already, or some of you at least, were signed up already to that course, Secrets of the Bible, that was supposed to happen last May, or this past May, of course, because of Corona. So we did not do it. Um, and the thought was to push it off until we could do it, you know, with more stability, etc., on every level. Um, I, right now, the plan is to do it online, is to do it on Zoom. But I encourage everyone to join this course. It's going to be mind-blowing. This is a course we've never taken this type of look at the stories of the Bible. The goal really is to take the most popular biblical stories and the ones that seem like the greatest fairy tales. Like the stuff is like, yeah, sure, come on, Adam and Eve and a snake, a talking snake, really? And like Noah's Ark, all the animals stuffed on a boat, really? Like giraffe, skylight, like what's going on with that? All the stories that like, you know, we hear as kids and we kind of like, eh, maybe, maybe not. We're going to look at them and look at them through a very, very profound lens of Jewish thought and uncover the truth behind these stories. And it will... It will thrill you and astonish you. 
when we look at this through the rigorous lens of Jewish study. Trust me, take my word for this. Jewish people are very smart. We have not been pouring over the Bible for 3,300 years plus discussing Baba Mises. That's not what's been going on. The scholarship, the level of scholarship that exists is incredibly deep and incredibly profound. This course is going to give a taste of this in the most simple, basic, well-known stories. The stuff of childhood. We're going to learn it again as adults. This is something necessary for all of Torah. We're going to start with, with uh, six stories. Six weeks, six stories. It begins in, I want to say, end of October, or, or I think end of October. Stay tuned. You know what? Maybe I'll send out an email to this group um, with a link. But it's actually on our website right now, intownjujacademy.org. Um, and then go to uh, study, live study, and it's going to come up um, as one of the, the upcoming opportunities. I will mention this. Again, if you're already signed up for it, then I've got you. I'll send out an email also soon with those that have signed up already. And to let you, if you're not sure, just email me and I'll let you know if we already have you in the system. But if you haven't yet signed up, first time hearing about it or didn't sign up last time, jump on it. It's going to be fabulous. You'll get a textbook, a course textbook will be mailed directly to your home. You'll get a nice thick textbook with the materials and additional readings, bound book. It's going to be gorgeous. You're going to love this. That begins October. I should also mention high holidays are approaching. We also have our dinner Thursday night, the gala dinner, um, delivered food to your house, food delivered to your home, delicious gourmet catered food uh, from EB Kosher Catering. And then an online program. So you get the meal and then the online program, concert, um, uh, address, video, amazing program, Thursday night starting at 6 p.m. Sign up, intownjewishacademy.org slash gala. Help support Intown Jewish Academy and adult Jewish learning. And we have a high holiday boot camp coming up. We have services, indoor, outdoor, all with masks, social distancing, on the belt line, at Piedmont Park, Gazebo, Tashlech, with chauffeur blowing. We got lots of stuff going on. Any questions, reach out to me, check the website, we got you covered. I want to wish everybody to be written and sealed for a healthy new year, a happy new year. Only blessings for you, for us, and for our, our entire mishpach, our entire family and collective families. And uh, this year, to me, the blessing is health. And from health, may everything else flow. All right, see you. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, take care, everyone. Hope to see you soon. Bye, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Bye, Latov. Bye. My pleasure. Great to see you all. Bye.